Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey y'all, I'm Otis Pickett, the University Historian at Clemson University and a man of faith based here in Clemson, South Carolina. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails, a podcast about faith, religion, and walking a faith-based life. On the show, we're going to be joined by both believers and scholars, leaders in the fields of education, history, and religion. My hope is that you find these conversations inspiring, and maybe you and I will even learn a thing or two along the way. Before I introduce my guest for this week's episode, I'd ask that you subscribe, rate, and even review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you've stumbled upon the show. Please also tell your friends, family, and pastors about it as we'd love to get support and get the word out. Okay, now to my guest for this week. It is such a great honor to have Russell Moore as a guest on our show today. The current editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Russell has been a great apologist for the Christian faith in America and is a leading voice on the future of evangelicalism in America. Although many individuals and groups have tried to silence Russell's voice in recent years, he's continued his quest to bring truth and ethics to the forefront of American society in an effort to bring the Christian church back to her true meaning. I hope that you'll listen to Russell's journey, the difficulties he's overcome, and how his love for the church remains. It's a story I think we can all learn from. Hey everyone, welcome to Purpose That Prevails. Uh, this is Otis Pickett, your host, and today we have on Dr. Russell Moore uh, with Christianity Today. Hey, Dr. Moore, how are you today? Hey, I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's warm down here in the South, down in South Carolina, but we're pretty used to that. Yeah, yeah, it is in Tennessee too, but for somebody who grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, it's nothing. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that humidity hits different in July and August. Yeah. Well, we're just going to get started. You know, we we have some amazing scholars, theologians, uh, church leaders on this podcast, and just always like to remind folks, we're just human beings. God's made us in his image, but we enjoy all kinds of different things. What are some things you'd like to do when you're not um, working with Christianity Today or church a churchman? What are some things that are fun for you you like to do? Well, my kids and wife and I like to walk in the woods. We have a we have a, a sort of a path, a trail that we walk uh, usually every afternoon when I'm in town, and I really enjoy that. And also, uh, I have a, a a book club, actually two book clubs of um, of uh, that, that really. The books are the excuses to get together. I, I yeah. told someone it's more like a Baptist Brotherhood breakfast, with, <laughs> if you know what that is, yes. uh, than it is a book club. But mm-hmm. it, it that those, those bring a lot of life to me. There might be some scripture read, there might be some prayers, but it's mostly just getting together to hang out. Well, we talk about books, but I think the books are the excuse for us to to make sure we get together and, and talk, because we talk about a bunch of other things, too. And um, yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, we always just like to, I grew up sort of in an African-American Baptist church background, was in a multi-ethnic church in Mississippi, and one thing we were always very conscious of doing is asking folks to share their testimony, just sort of their journey in faith. And I know a lot of folks probably know that, uh, but maybe some folks in our audience don't know about your faith journey. Would you mind just sharing your testimony with us? 
Yeah, I uh, grew up in a, a very close-knit Southern Baptist congregation that had been pastored by my grandfather um, before I was born. I came to personal faith at about 11 or 12 years old, um, but then went through a faith crisis, a spiritual crisis when I was about 15. and really worked my way uh, through that. Nobody really even knew that I was going through that except my youth pastor who handled it really well. He Mm -hmm. was, um, he he was, uh, uh, he didn't hector me. He he sort of patiently was, was there for me through that. And I came out uh, the other side of that. Uh, But it had a, it had a big influence on the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. both in terms of, kind of having a, an ongoing burden for people who are in that same situation I was in, who are just looking around and saying, is, is Christianity just a means to an end? Hmm. Is, it, is it real? But also because I, it, it gave me a confidence in what I actually uh, believe and, and, hmm. uh, and who, to whom I ultimately belong. So hmm. I came out of that quite a bit, uh, quite a bit stronger. Hmm. Yeah, we, we've had a lot of folks um, share that same testimony. And, and then the testimony continues into adulthood and into their ministry and God yeah. showing up faithfully, even when there are times of crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. All right. So for our audience, I first met you at Mount Helm Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Yes. CJ Rhodes. That's right. CJ Rhodes. He was amazing and he does so yes. much incredible work on behalf of incarcerated people in Mississippi and has been a longtime pastor at that wonderful church. And I remember I came because our mutual friend, John Perkins had been teaching at Mississippi college and some of my classes, and you were giving an award to John Perkins that evening. Mm -hmm. And it's the more white evangelical audiences I speak to. It's interesting how few people know about John and his work and how many decades he's been laboring I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about John Perkins and his influence in your life. I mean, both coming from Mississippi, but also as a father in the faith. You know, it's hard to overestimate uh, the influence that John Perkins has had on on entire generations of people. Hmm. And I think there are I think there are several reasons for that. I mean, I think I think one of those reasons is because. John was, John was not only saying some things that other people were afraid to say, he also was willing to say those things in multiple different contexts. Mm. And so uh, John was able to speak kind of across a lot of the, a lot of the usual uh, boundaries that we have in American life. And as a Mississippian, maybe especially in Mississippi life. I mean, there are, there are completely different subcultures, even Christian subcultures in Mississippi that, that almost are completely unaware of each other. And John was able to speak to uh, all of them. He also was somebody who kept, who kept really close, both the personal uh, aspect of the faith, Orthodox Christianity need to be uh, born again and to be discipled, mm-hmm. and to know the Bible. Still, still uh, teaching a 
Bible study over Zoom, yes. you know, those kinds of things. And Which also, was a lifeline during COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also able to speak, um, able to speak in terms of uh, justice at the public level. So he's really able to uh, integrate together the biblical witness mm-hmm. and speak both uh, with the the prophets. And, I mean, throughout the, all of Scripture, so he's able to integrate those things together. And I mean, it, it, the, I don't know when it happened because it's always been this way as long as I can remember. John took on a a kind of authority that very few people have. Mm-hmm. I I often kid John about the time that I had him speak at an event, and he just sort of went off on Christian rap. <laughs> well, we had many Christian rappers there wow. uh, at the event, and mm. and w- one of them, uh, uh, Trip Lee, who's a who's a pastor now. Mm-hmm. But uh, afterward, I, I said, Trip, I'm really sorry. I didn't know that uh, that he was going to say that. And he said, Are you kidding? That's John Perkins. He can mm. say whatever he wants to say, <laughs> and I'm just happy to be here. Wow, and that's kind Man. of the the sort of authority that yep. he has, and and the reverence that people have for him. Mm. And, and just such a example, I think to many people of, Hey, my Christian convictions are leading me to this place and it's going to be hard and uncomfortable in my context, but I know it's right. Yeah. And I'm going to stand up and do the right thing kind of when it's time. You know, and the other thing about John is there was a consistency or I say was, there is a consistency to him. I remember uh, this would have been probably about 2013, 2014. So it was really before the sort of talk about white working class that we have now. John saying to me, uh, we got to pay attention to poor white people who are uh, are suffering. And he started talking about trailer parks of, of people in Mississippi and the things, you know, and, and it would be easy for him to say, okay, there are other people who can worry about that. Hmm. I'm going to focus on what I've been given. And he never did. He had a consistency about it. Hmm. Wow. So you mentioned uh, being a native of Mississippi, being from the mm-hmm. Gulf coast and uh, my audience knows I was in Mississippi from 2008 uh, to 2022. And, during that time, there was a lot of work being done in the state and a variety of different issues related to justice, mm-hmm. related to mass incarceration, related to education, related to the state flag, and sort of getting a chance to participate in that and then also see people of faith be active. I feel like one of the stories that hasn't been told about Mississippi is the Mississippi Baptist Convention, the role that leaders in the church played in that flag change. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about where do you think that came from? Where do you think that motivation from faith came from at this pivotal moment to recognize this symbol might need a change? 
Well, I think that it's it's kind of like anything else. I mean, when uh, Jesus uh, uses this imagery of uh, yeast of leaven, mm. both positively and negatively, mm. uh, beware the the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Mm. He says to his disciples, "Beware the way that you can sort of imperceptibly become the very thing that you're fighting against." You think, mm. uh, but also the the leaven of the kingdom of God that works invisibly under the surface. Mm. And so I think that a lot of this happened because there was some teaching and preaching that didn't have anything to do necessarily with the Confederate flag or the Mississippi flag, but had to do with those underlying uh, questions over a period of time, over a period of years, Mm. so that then um, after, uh, really after the Charleston, um, Emmanuel AME, uh, uh, shooting mm-hmm. murders there, when the conversation started to happen nationally, uh, there were some key people in Mississippi who were, who were willing to speak to it mm-hmm. and, and really across the usual sort of partisan lines. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't just, um, it would be one thing if it were just the mainline Protestant right, churches right. in Mississippi, although I'm, I'm glad that they did yes, do, yes. but it, it would have been kind of expected for them to speak to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, would have been, it would have been kind of expected for people who are on the more progressive side politically uh, to speak to it. But instead you had that and you had some key figures who uh, were, either in very conservative church contexts or in very conservative uh, political contexts who were also able to realize, wait, this is, this is just not right. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, uh, figures such as um, the speaker of the house, uh, Philip Gunn. Gunn, And after, after he made clear his views, Mm -hmm. there were signs that said, keep the flag, change the speaker, Mm -hmm. you know, and, Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing might have scared, uh, scared a lot of people from saying, well, this is just not something I can, I should weigh in on, but they did. And I think one of the things that you saw in the Mississippi flag issue is you had that, you had that building of sort of a moral infrastructure that Mm. was happening over a long time. Right. And then you had what seemed to be something very sudden, Hmm. Uh, yes. All of a sudden, right. the legislature changes the flag, the governor signs it. It seemed as though it happened very, very quickly, but really it hadn't. It, it was it was years and years and years of work. Yeah. You mentioned, um, so like for our audience who are, you know, in Christian churches and maybe hearing sermons that touched on some of the issues or teaching that you mentioned that there had been this sort of teaching around loving our neighbor or maybe even the prophetic works of the Old Testament around issues of justice? Like, are there topics that you think Christian pastors, as we, as, as we're building that moral kind of context, is that some, are there particular passages that white evangelicals should be sort of thinking about more? Well, I think when it comes to actually teaching uh, this, it, it really teaching anything that has to do with with moral formation in any way, there 
there has to be a combination of both directness and indirectness Hmm. uh, that's there. And what I mean by that is there's some indirectness where you're, you're able to speak to people in a way that doesn't immediately put up their defenses. So you think about the way C.S. Lewis talked about the Narnia Chronicles. It goes around those watchful dragons uh, Uh by, by doing something with a story. Nathan, uh, the prophet does this with David. He, Uh he, He doesn't come in and raise immediately the issue of Bathsheba. He tells a story that right. appeals to the moral imagination of right. David. He recognizes that as unjust in a way he probably wouldn't have if he were self-protecting. Hmm. So sometimes there's there's that, but that can't be uh, that can't be all that there is hmm. because when that happens, then people are easily able just to sort of move into abstractions. Hmm. So there are very few people uh, who would be in Christian churches who would say, I should not love neighbor. Right. Um, the, the, the issue ultimately is all of us, and in every context from Eden till now, there's always this tendency to have certain people who are invisible to us, hmm. the people you're not supposed to think about. Hmm. And so the way fallen human psychology works is it's easy just to filter those people out. Hmm. So you you don't feel as though you're usually, as though you're actively hating somebody or actively harming somebody. You don't think about them at all. Hmm. And so part of what has to happen in the directness of of uh, teaching is to make those people visible mm. and, and to say, uh, and to say, who, who are they? Mm. And, and why is it that you don't see them or you're not supposed to see them? Mm. I mean, that's the entire fabric of, of scripture. And that also means, I think a recognition of the demonstration aspect of the kingdom of God. Uh, in book of Acts, in Romans, in Ephesians, in Galatians, the, the church is to point to the outside world, a refracted, fallible, fallen, but real signpost and pointer hmm. uh, to the kingdom of God. Hmm. I think about in Mississippi, the people that I knew who were of uh, an older generation who actually cared about racial justice and mm. racial reconciliation, they almost all had one thing in common, and that was the United States Air Force mm. or some other branch of the of the military because they had come out of whatever context they were in and into a very different context where they started to see people as colleagues and as um, as friends and they were able to see that, that working together. And I'm glad for that, but I often think about how much better it would have been if the church had taught the air force, these things (laughs) rather than the other way around. Right. So I wanted to talk a little bit, if we could just about the era of 2016 to 2020, sort of kind of what's happening. You've got, in my view, an elected president who many evangelical Christians came out in support for. And, and just sort of in a lot of ways, 
adopted a lot of things that we would think of as very unchristian in behavior and in past actions. And, but yet there's this kind of swarming to this political figure, Donald Trump, and you are kind of in the midst of all that and you are kind of trying to speak truth. And it was so interesting to me to watch as you're trying to speak truth and how some Christians are accepting the truth of a political figure that doesn't really embody a lot of the things that I was taught were biblical or white evangelical or whatever you want to say about American Christianity. And it seemed like the Christians who were offering those critiques were mistrusted. And I was just wondering if you could just kind of walk us through that time and what that was like. Well, it's not, it's not unusual for uh, people in America. I mean, my situation was higher profile than most people, but it, it, it's not unusual. I mean, almost everybody in this time, almost every family I know has some division uh, mm. over this particular personality, political right. figure. Right. Uh, almost every church has some has some tensions. Mm. And so for me, I had at the sort of at the national level, uh, more intense, yeah. lived a more intense time than most people, but at the personal level, maybe less so hmm. than most people. Hmm. Because one of the things my my views on this are so well known, right? That it kind of filters uh, people out. If people are willing to speak to me, they've kind of already <laughs> made peace with <laughs> with who I am, and so. And so in that sense, I'll have a lot of friends who will say, oh, it must be terrible to have people come up to you uh, in a church and, and scream at you and so forth. That that never happens. I, mm. I can't think of a time that has ever happened for mm. that very reason. Mm. But there were a lot of um, a lot of uh, both public and behind the scenes uh, measures from a bigger Mm. Uh, level than that to mm. say get yeah. on get on board and for me I mean when with, with the beginning of the beginning of the Trump era there were a lot of people who held the exact same position that I held but who said you know I'm I'm going to make this transactional kind of arrangement where yeah. I'm not on board with all of this but I, I think that appointments will be better and right, maybe right. there'll be some growth and maturity in office and those sorts of things. Right. I understand that that's reasonable. That's mm -hmm. not the, that's not the approach that, that I took, but at right. least then, um, I, it, that was a reasonable sort of way for people to think about it. Even if I think it was mistaken, mm -hmm. my problem was, uh, I knew how American political and cultural life works hmm. now hmm. in a way that it didn't before. I mean, hmm. in, in 1956, uh, you're going to have people who are saying I'm for Eisenhower or I'm for Adlai Stevenson. And, um, th th there's not a cult of personality right. or a sorting that right. comes uh, with that in right. the same way. And now, though, 
the pressures are for uh, whoever is the leader of a political movement to completely, completely. and overwhelmingly define it. Yeah. And so what happened is what I thought would happen is that it, it's not that you had a group of people who were really holding the power accountable. It's that you had a lot of people who became like what it was that they, um, that they were supporting. And I mean, we can even see that in terms of all of the, the survey data. Yeah. A lot of the most disturbing uh, aspects of the Trump era. And I would say the same thing about the, some of the more disturbing aspects of the left in American life are indeed being replicated at the um, at the the younger level, but usually by secularized people. Hmm. Uh, so I may well run into um, a twenty year old alt right white nationalist on a college or university, um, and I do uh, all the time. Those are almost never people who are part of their campus ministries and. Uh, hmm. in churches, hmm. even if they kind of self-identify as hmm. Christian. Hmm. So there's, I have a lot of hope for the future. Yeah. You know, it's interesting the ways in which Christians kind of coalesce so quickly. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if like a lack of historical knowledge, a lack of the connection between American religion or American civic engagement and religion have been wedded together for so many decades in American history. There was a real lack of sort of understanding of that. And also I think a lack within evangelicalism of realizing the ways in which evangelicals and Christians can be manipulated by, by politicians. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so are there lessons that we've kind of learned as a Christian population from that, that moving forward, we can maybe, be to, we can be more critical. We can ask more difficult questions. We can be harder to woo as a elector electorate base and really hold politicians accountable. Are there lessons there that you've taken from that time? Well, I what I'm primarily concerned about are two things that seem to be contradictory of, of each other, but I don't think they are. Huh. One of those is normalization. Huh. I mean, it was uh, I. I um, I laughed and was kind of taken aback when I was on a college campus and the person was introducing me and said, you all are, of course, too young to remember this. But back in the Trump era, <laughs> Dr. Moore was one of the few evangelicals, too. And, yeah. and I was I was thinking back in the Trump era. And then I realized, you know, the. the the students in that room, uh, when all of this uh, started in 2015, 2016, were 10 or 12 years old. Mm. So they've, they've seen all they've seen is, is sort of this kind of uh, reality so that, um, mm. so that when you think about how crazy things are right now, for, for a lot of them, I worry that it just simply seems to be the way things are. The other, though, is we all have a tendency to overreact to the last bad thing, right? which is to say, whatever it is that I saw that was bad, that means that whatever is opposite of that 
must be good. Hmm. I taught in the Institute of Politics at University of Chicago for a semester in 2021. And the center-right students and the evangelical students, their training in those areas were almost always, when you said, what would you like to be? Um, I'd like to be an ambassador. Or I'd like to be a, it was always appointive offices because they didn't even think about right. electoral politics yeah. because they, they couldn't see how they could do that without right. pretending to be crazy wow, or evil. Wow. And um, that, I think, can can have some some bad implications if, if what we say is, well, any kind of political engagement always leads to that, hmm. that that I think can Man. Uh, I worry about that. Yeah, that's that's really insightful when you've got a, a large population of people who their only frame of reference may be Trump, Obama and then covid. And that's right. normal. Yeah. And moving forward, where for you and I, normal was, like you said, I mean, you could be Republican, Democrat, and you weren't necessarily demonized. And we could right. have discussions that were respectful and rooted in facts and dialogue and back and forth. And you weren't uh, attacked, basically. Um, yeah. So Christians may be setting the reset button on <laughs> how do we just engage one another as humans? This is just the new normal. It's there's nothing that's there's no there's no magical off ramp from this. And I think there were a lot of people who thought, you know, things come and go. Or they thought there will be some big national emergency, a September 11th or a Pearl Harbor or something that will will rally the country together. And then we had a big global emergency. It didn't. It didn't unite the country right. uh, at all. It had the opposite effect. Mm. So the kind of, uh, well, this will just go away thinking has proven to be wrong. Hmm. Man. One thing I'm, I'm often struck by is how Christians can be so pro-life there and yet so willing to be, to not see people, as you were talking about earlier, who are struggling with life issues with regard to maybe being needed to be adopted with regard to being incarcerated with regard to not getting access to healthcare. I was wondering if you could walk us through as an ethical uh, ethicist, what are, what is a robust view of pro-life look like for, or what it should look like in American evangelicalism? Well, I'm concerned about even if you narrow the conversation to only abortion, right? Uh, I'm concerned about uh, what happens uh, because, and and this is one of the things that that I was concerned about in 2016 and in the lead up to it, and always have been the the pro life issue, whether somebody agrees with those of us who are pro life or not. The pro-life issue is built on a certain understanding of human dignity and human vulnerability. Mm -hmm. If there's a a group of refugees coming into a town or a city that um, are in danger of kind of being marginalized Mm -hmm. and they need need people to love them and care about them, first place I'm going to start is with the pro-life ministries Mm -hmm. because they they understand human vulnerability yes. and th- that, that everybody's made in the image of God. 
and they're able then usually to to apply that hmm. uh, across the board. So even if we're only talking about abortion, I'm very very worried hmm. about um, about whether or not a an evangelical America is able to hold on to that. Hmm. I remember one time I had two pastors who came up to me almost right one after the other. And the first was somebody who said, you know, in my church, uh, in a very, very red uh, part of a very red state, if I preach on abortion, pro-life, a sermon on abortion, everybody's going to applaud. They're going to love it. But if I talk about immigrants or refugees or the poor uh, or race, then I'm going to get a lot of anger and people are going to accuse me of being a liberal. Then there was a church planter from a very blue area of a very blue state who said, I can preach about the poor, refugees, immigrants, um, all of those things all day long, and my people will applaud. If I even bring up the humanity of the unborn, then I'm going to have a backlash and people are going to say, when did you become a right-wing zealot? Mm. So it's, it, it's, again, it goes back to that that fundamental question of who are the people that I have to make invisible. Hmm. Um, and also I think it means a consistent sort of ethic so that the, the sort of lesser of two evils, let us do things that are wrong in order that we can have good effects. Um, not only does that not work long-term, it does something to you. Hmm. Um, yeah. and it, it changes the, it changes the character and the credibility that you, that you have. Hmm. What is it about North America? We'll say with the Western hemisphere in North America, what are, what is it that's driving who we make invisible? You think? Well, largely not, uh, not exclusively, but largely race hmm. in our context. Hmm. Um, which, which is why often even conversations that don't seem to be about race, if you, if you push them, if you can sort of push under the surface just a little bit, hmm. you find out that's exactly what they're about. Hmm. And so that has had, uh, th- that has widespread, uh, implications. Now, of course, we also have the same, uh, the same sorts of, of, um, the same sorts of invisibilities that almost every culture has about right. Right. Uh, the poor the and poor. and others, but right. but race is is huge in a North American context. Yeah, and and it seems to me um, I don't know if you're coming across this too, but like quit talking about race. Aren't we past race? Like why are yeah. you bringing this up? Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's such a intrinsic part of our development as a as a civilization that has continued to have a legacy in a variety of ways in terms of our structures and our economic opportunities and our educational opportunities that, I mean, do Christians have a responsibility to try to tease that out (laughs) for folks? So that, that's a, that's a good question. I wanted to read a quote from you and I wonder if you could just comment on it a little bit. It's a quote. You said, when God called me to himself in Jesus and when he called me to serve him in ministry, He called me to stand for truth, to point the way to the kingdom, to die to self and to carry the cross. He did not provide me to cover. He did not 
call me to provide cover for racial bigotry and child molestation. I will not do that. So as a Southern Christian scholar, what do you see now as some of the things that we might be trying to provide cover for in the church? What are the ways, what are the truths that we need to be standing up for in 2023, 2024, moving into this next decade? Well, the main thing is that there's a, um, there's a mentality that works toward evil in any institution. Mm. And it certainly has shown up uh, in the church uh, in, in almost every era. In fact, Jesus warned us uh, about it. Mm. But there's a mentality to say, uh, we have to cover things up because if we don't, it's going to give a bad reputation to the institution. Hmm. And then when the institution is a spiritual institution, hmm. you can even more uh, justify it by saying to yourself, if, if people know about this, so for instance, uh, often some of the pushback that would happen um, when we would talk about church sexual abuse is somebody would say, you know, if you do that, if you talk about this, then people are going to lose confidence in the church and they're not going to give to missionaries. That means you, know, you follow the, the circle all the way down. People are going to go to hell. Hmm. Um, and to which I would respond, that's what I'm trying to address mm-hmm. is, uh, mm-hmm. I think, uh, his people going to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's that sense of to do that and also a sense of if you critique your own institution or your own sort of tribal faction, you're being disloyal Interesting. Uh, to that and you're yep. being exiled. Now, mm-hmm. again, you, when you come to the church, you, that heightens way up <sighs> because it feels like if you have somebody who's been enculturated uh, within a church context. When your church says to you, depart from me, worker of iniquity, Mm. it feels like Jesus is saying that, Mm -hmm. even if you cognitively know that that's not the case. So it it gives an inordinate sort of um, of power, uh, what is a, a kind of authority and power that Jesus established to be used for good can be used for evil ends too. And that's what happens. And so that's, it's, it's the exact reverse of what Jesus both did and taught us. Uh, He's not, uh, not worried about the moral temperature of the Roman empire. Uh, And he seems very uh, almost, uh, tranquil when it comes to there's no pearl clutching and shock that tax collectors are right. <laughs> uh, doing what they're doing or right. prostitutes uh-huh. but he's 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 driving out the money changers from the temple right and you have Paul teaching in first Corinthians chapter 5 when I tell you uh, to to not associate with those who are acting immorally I'm not talking about the people out in the world. 
I don't judge the world. We judge those who are within the church. So you mm. maintain the integrity of wow. the church. In our context, it's easier. And, and this is the case, not just in the church. This is a case in every aspect of American life. The reverse mm. is, is what is sanctified. Mm. So whatever's happening among us, whoever you define us to be, are the things that we either don't talk about we, we or we mute our talk about them or we find some way to justify them hmm. and then whatever's happening on the outside of whoever uh, whoever is other from us those are the things that we castigate wow. and that's just the just a complete upside down of the biblical command the first addresses that we have uh, other than to individuals of Jesus after his resurrection from the dead, where right. we actually have the wording in Scripture, mm. in those opening chapters of Revelation, where he is chastising the churches. Yep. And why does he do that? Because he takes them seriously. <laughs> it's the, the, it's the, his the pride. Church, the church is important. Yes. And and points to and so if the if the church is just you know the thing that we do. <laughs> Uh, as uh, John Updike said, it gives us something to do on Sunday mornings when the post office is closed. <laughs> uh, if, if that's all the church is, then what What real difference does it make? Hmm. What the church does or, or says and what it reflects. Hmm. But if the church actually is meant to be the, the vehicle for carrying out the mission of God and pointing people toward the kingdom of God, uh, if where two or three are gathered together, I am in the midst of you, mm. then it's really important. I had, um, I had uh, my friend who just passed away, Tim Keller, mm. New York uh, pastor, uh, I had him as a guest with me in a class I was teaching, all secular, most of the students had never even met an evangelical Christian mm. until me. And he was there, and one student said, uh, you know, you all use this this word evangelical, and why do you even use it when it has become so associated with the political nonsense and the, just went through the whole list of things? Yeah. And Tim's response was to say, because most of us are in Africa and Asia and Latin America, <laughs> and the North Americans don't get to just decide what we're called just because we've wrecked the brand. Mm. Uh, and the student just said, fair enough and (laughs) sat down and I thought about it and thought, you know, the most important and significant thing he said in that was us. Mm. Most of us are in Africa and Asia and Latin America. We, we belong to this bigger, uh, body. And Mm. that's, that's a key Christian insight that's necessary when you have this, uh, fallen human impulse to deify uh, the flesh, Mm. blood and soil and tribe and all Mm. those things. It's just this really amazing view that Tim had of, man, I have a lot in common as a brother to folks who are in Africa and China and South America. Mm -hmm. And his view, it seems to me, was much longer than his time here on earth Yeah, that I'm a citizen and I've got this human form and I'm in this country 
but like he's thinking eternally. He's thinking mm-hmm. with regard to where I will spend eternity with these brothers and sisters. And we'll be singing a new song mm-hmm. uh, to our savior, the lamb who was slain. And I'm, 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 and I just love thinking of Tim being there right now, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but some folks in our audience are just in different stages of their journeys. Um, some folks are maybe just beginning to investigate sort of what is my call as a Christian to stand up for the vulnerable in our society? What do I do? Uh, some folks may be on a part of a journey where they're like, I've done that and I got really burned. And I don't want to do it anymore. It's just not worth it. Yeah. And some folks are, have been doing it their whole lives and just need encouragement in, in a difficult time. And I was wondering if you could just offer a piece of advice to our listeners on what, what, what would you say to all three and probably people in other stages? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're going to get burned. Yeah. You're, you're going to be heartbroken if you do anything that matters. Right anything that matters. Hmm. Uh, so, so I, I can't give you a way to do any aspect of following Christ that leaves you crossless. Hmm. There's not, there's not one. Um, but I can also say there's a diversity of gifts within the church and it also applies here. So you don't have to do everything the uh, the Samaritan in Jesus's parable uh, didn't start Jericho Road Ministries. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he just he th- this wasn't an NGO. <laughs> he he just responded to yeah. uh, what he saw right in front of him. Right, and so you don't have to do everything. The person who's doing that foster care ministry probably doesn't even have any idea and probably won't even know until heaven Mm. the way that that has empowered a prison uh, ministry to the incarcerated Mm. or that has prompted people to care for uh, women who are uh, coming out of abusive domestic situations or it just goes on and on and on. The ripple effect. It has a ripple effect, Yeah. yeah. This has probably been 20 years ago, but I was in a church where uh, they had, it was a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I think, and there was a mechanic who uh, got up. He was scared to death, trembling, he wasn't accustomed to speaking large groups of people, and this was a big place, and he had a sheet of paper in front of him that he was reading off of, but what he said was, okay, we've got a lot of single moms in our community and what I've noticed is that a lot of them are getting ripped off by mm. um, car repair uh, services. Mm. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be here every Saturday and I'm going to teach you how to do kind of basic change the spark plugs, check your oil sort of stuff for anybody who needs that. And I'll be a sounding board if you want to come in and say, okay, here's an estimate I've been given from somewhere wow. to say yep. yeah, it's fair or it's not. Well, I mean, this, it, it, the, the, the way that he's doing that mm. immediately, just with me, caused me to step back and say, wow, what are all the possibilities that just areas of ministry? I've never even thought about that and I, that I've never even thought about. And I guarantee you that was going on all over the place. 
and, from this one guy. And it seems like the Lord just opened his eyes to see these yeah. people. Yeah. These folks. Yeah. And what and he just asked, um, what has God uniquely gifted me to be able to do? And who are the people that I care about and I want to help? Hmm. There you go. Hmm. Um, finally, I think, well, this has been so great, but I, I want to just ask you as a theologian, as an ethicist, as a churchman, as a man of faith, what would be your hope? I think that a lot of what we worry about is, okay, well, how do we minister to the next generation in a way that's going to keep them? And I think the pattern that Jesus has given to us is instead maybe the reverse of that, (laughs) which is to say, uh, what do we need from the next generation and how do we then empower them to do that if we could recover it? There's just no estimating what would happen. Yeah. My pastor, Herman Robinson, used to do this in Charleston. Mm-hmm. He, I grew up Episcopalian, mm-hmm. so we'd read from the Book of Common Prayer. I had never prayed just led by the Spirit before. Yeah. And he would have me stand up 12 years old and pray. And the uh, way that church body loved on me afterwards, yeah, I may have been the only white man in the room. And just the, the affirmation, the love, the encouragement. And then I thought, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. Yeah. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, Russell, is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners, just kind of what you're working on, what Christianity Today is doing, anything you'd like our folks to tune in and listen or check out? I have a new book called uh, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. Hmm. You know, I'm talking about a lot of the stuff we're talking about here, about how what's the way forward for the church um, in a way in which a lot of people are thinking, I have to choose between... Jesus and sanity. And (laughs) that's not the choice Jesus gave us. Hmm. I'm going to call this the turning everything upside down episode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Russell Moore, thank you so much for your time. It just means a lot to us. Thank you for your Christian witness. Thank you for being faithful to Jesus in a very difficult time. Thank you for speaking truth in a very difficult time. It encouraged so many of us. In so many well, different places, we probably won't see it till heaven. But thank you. Well, likewise, and keep uh, keep uh, keep pressing forward. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of Purpose That Prevails. If you've made it this far, I hope this means this conversation was thought provoking and lights your path on this walk of faith we're all on together. A reminder: please spread the word about the show to your church community, your family, your friends. Every bit helps. If you would be so kind to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. It's been a pleasure for me to host the show and spend this time with you. My name is Otis Pickett. Until next time, God bless. Next Chapter Podcasts.